Welcome back, everyone, to another awesome episode of the Biff Bites podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Mee, joined, as always, by my three faithful companions. Up first, we have Mr. Mike Long. How's it going, Mike? Fine. It's frog's hair, Jerry. You know me. It's always with the idioms. <laughs> and a living idiom himself, Mr. Adam Shear. How you doing, Adam? Hey there. Good to be back. You idiom. <laughs> <laughs> and last but not least, Mr. Brennan Flaherty. How you doing, Brendan? I'm good, guys. How you doing? Excellent, excellent. Glad to have you guys all back in the studio here. Got a great episode to talk about. Uh, got some great suggestions. So I'm I'm excited to just dive right in. What do you guys think? Absolutely. So first up on the docket is the news that the CFP board emailed out to all of us. Uh, you know, a lot of our listeners probably got the same email. But some pretty big changes coming to the March 2022 exam. Nothing anyone taking the July or November exam has to worry about. Uh, but if you are still in the education process or still studying and you're planning on taking the exam in the new year, uh, definitely some stuff that you are going to want to take a look at. What's kind of your guys uh, gut reaction to uh, to the news? I think it's overdue. You know, I think that that uh, well, especially the behavioral stuff. So putting the behavioral stuff into its own category, I think, is important. I think it's timely, uh, and and I think it's it's you know a big part of what we do professionally is is really kind of counseling people to control those emotions. Yeah, I would say that's probably the biggest change that was announced. Uh, basically, behavioral finance is. Uh, you know, being separated out from general principles and is now going to be its own topic, not necessarily a new topic because it was present in the uh, curriculum and the, the test, uh, you know, for at least a few cycles now. It's just now it's becoming its own official topic. What about you, Adam? What, what's kind of your thoughts? I, I agree. I think that it is about time. I mean, there's there's the, the numbers piece to this, and then there's the behaviors and the feelings. And I think it's it's about time that we acknowledge that this is something that advisors need to be in tune with. And uh, while not being therapists, right, we're, we're not doing any psychotherapy, but we, we understand better now through research and experience the interrelation between uh, people and money and how they behave with money. So... I think ultimately it's going to lead to better advisors. Yeah, awesome. And I'm sorry, Mike. I thought I think you were saying something. I cut you off. I, I was just going to mention. I was looking on their list. It's a. It, it has become a seven percent category. So what would that be? Eleven or twelve questions. But being the curmudgeon, <laughs> cynical, Palmer, <laughs> I'm kind of like. Ah! You know, it's out there, uh, but I'm fascinated by what do we really do with that information? Um, if when, if not counseling the client, um, helping them understand why they're resisting the advice. Is it to overcome that objection? Um, that's what I'd like to hear about, you know, as we move forward from folks in the field. Uh, you know, how are you using this? Is it, is it, is it a way to close? <laughs> Because, oh, let me explain to you why you feel the way you do. Um, so I, I just, I'm very fascinated by it, but um, well, 
I, I'm a little reserved about the how it will be used, I guess. Anybody uh, got a thought on that? I think part of it is also to to understand the emotions that maybe you're feeling as the advisor and, and making sure that you're not, you know, allowing those to kind of dictate your path. You know, the the in in this business you, you stick your neck out quite a few times and, and I think it's important to be Sometimes it's hard. Those conversations are hard, and, and, and you need to make sure that you have the courage to kind of stick to the objective piece and, and not necessarily fall victim to the emotional piece. So you're saying that as an advisor, maybe you're experiencing recency bias? Yeah, and, you're one and level that's, removed. That's in, that's in impacting your advice to the client? I think it could be impacting your advice to the client. I, I think it could give you the ability to kind of, you know, want to get caught up in that emotion. And, in, in, you know, if you take a look at some of the recency in the, the, the volatility in the markets, the, you know, it's, it's sometimes when you're in that herd mentality, it's hard to not uh, do the things that everyone else is doing, even though clearly you think that well, maybe this is the right thing to do. So it just gives you the ability to kind of understand maybe why you're feeling the things you are uh, and help you to stick to your guns. I'm I'm glad that they are making it its own uh, topic because it is something that has been tested on in the past. Uh, it's been something that the CFP board has definitely harped on in the past, so I'm not surprised that they're making it its own topic, but it's nice that they are because now actually we might see some dedicated materials towards it specifically geared towards CFPs. Uh, I've really struggled in the past helping students with giving them, um, you know, some other third party materials for them to study from that was behavioral finance specifically for CFPs and, you know, students studying for the CFP exam. There just isn't really that much out there for study material. It's mostly, you know, firsthand material, you know, actual psychological studies or, uh, you know, finance articles that are not really meant for other professionals. They're more meant for, you know, lay people. And, and there's definitely been a, a trend. This, this has been trending in the business for, for several years where a lot of the, when you have people come in from like American Funds or Voya, or they'll come in with to try to give you something that's not specific to their product uh, as just a value add. And, and really about five or six years ago, they really started pushing uh, on behavioral finance. Uh, and Voya, it, it was at the time it was ING, but in particular started to really focus in on, you know, they, they'd have this thing where the, the people would come in with buzzers um, and they'd put a scenario up in the, on the screen and, and you'd have to answer one way or the other. And it's interesting to see how the how the group answers and how that might differ from yours. And it really was a fascinating study. Uh, and it, so this is this has been trending from from a business standpoint uh, for for a number of years. And and to allay Mike's concerns, no, it wasn't about cornering people more effectively. Uh, <laughs> it, it was definitely it was definitely just understanding some of the emotions that you might be feeling uh, again and giving advice. Yeah, and Jerry makes a great point too with. Uh, the CFP board, hopefully there'll be some very pointed learning objectives, good insight from them on what they expect uh, a CFP to know. How, where do you draw the line? Right. And and I think Adam was going to add something as well. Oh, yeah. I I think Mike and, and just just sitting here and, and um, running through a couple of scenarios where this could be applied. I think you see a lot of the research represented in, in risk assessments. Yeah. Um, Right. I mean, we talked we talked on our jam sessions about 
uh, the the qualitative and quantitative and how how risk tolerance right that's 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 your feelings that's that's where we're like we can't tolerate this anymore and I think a lot of the research that's coming out on the behavioral side uh, can can lead to some more accuracy on that you know where do the clients really stand in terms of of the the amount of losses that they can they can handle and and from there that could in, that could lead to some good portfolio design and just making some good choices you know and help them really understand that what they're seeing in the short term may not necessarily alter anything in the long term both good and bad now one thing I'm looking, so CFP board released a side-by-side -side comparison chart of basically the old exam weights and the new exam weights, and the room that they made for psychology of financial planning is it looks like they cut education planning from the exam. Like, that that can't be true, right? We're still no. going to see. No, no, no. It's just absorbed into uh, course Yeah. Board. It relocated. Right. So it, so education planning is no longer a standalone topic. It got absorbed into general principles, but general principles also went from about 17% of the test down to about 15% of the exam, plus it absorbed education planning, which was 6% of the exam. So in reality, that's about an 8% reduction in general principles style questions. Yeah, are we just seeing a lot less emphasis placed on that? I mean, I, I think a lot of the behavioral stuff also overlaps well with really courses one and three. So, so finding general principles and in, in investments, um, and and so I think that you know it it, it fits well uh, there, and it just again in terms of the counseling um, and and the communication skills that are needed. So I, I think it's. While you're right, it's it's been isolated, and it looks like that 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 has led to a reduction in general principle overall. Um, I, I would imagine that when you come out of the test, you're going to feel like you had the same amount of general principle questions. Absolutely, right. and you you see this at, at the the level of the CFP education providers that are out there, and in a lot of instances, education planning is is just a part of that first course. It's yeah. the general principles course. It looks like they combined. Um, there were separate sections before on financial aid and education financing. And now there's just one uh, topic, B15, education funding. So I'm guessing there's going to be a little bit of both uh, financial aid and financing. But it will be interesting to see how far, uh, particularly on the financial aid side of, of what a CFP is expected to know. Uh, some other kind of interesting takeaways, uh, tax planning increased importance from 12% to 14%. So that means you're probably going to get, you know, one or two more tax planning questions. Uh, and also professional conduct went up uh, another percent as well. So just some interesting insight into kind of the emphasis that the CFP board is placing on certain topics, uh, you know, which which areas they feel need a little bit more love, which ones they're going to just spend just that little bit extra attention on. Yeah, and, and retirement went up to 18%, which is yeah. the first move for that. Yeah. Uh, and, and let's not forget that this all stems from the the, the, the practice analysis that they've done, right? So this is this is respondents who, who are active practitioners who are saying, this is what I'm doing on my day-to-day. -day. Uh, and, and so that that's where these topics really stem from. So it's what people I, are seeing in the field. Yeah, and I, I think that that makes sense logically to me because a topic that went down was insurance. And that makes sense to me because at least from my own personal experience, 
most financial advisors don't do insurance themselves unless they are specifically an insurance advisor. Um, most advisors will, you know, send refer that uh, insurance business out to someone else in their firm who, you know, specializes in insurance. They have an insurance guy who handles all of that stuff. Yeah, and same with estate planning. That that dropped yep. two percentage points to to ten percent now, mm-hmm. and. I mean, from what from what I hear, teaching estate planning uh, for for Biff and Bryant, it's it's just that. A lot of people step into that course and say, "This is just something I'm completely unfamiliar with at this level," and here it is represented with the the new category waiting. I think I think the CFP board's goal in in those areas, and this is just my own conjecture, is they want to teach people enough so that you know what you don't know. <laughs> you know, you can look at a client's uh, situation. And you can, you know, know the general outline of what what they need to get taken care of and then refer that person to a specialist to get that taken care of. But at least be able to be, you know, kind of like the the family care do- doctor that identifies, hey, this is a problem. You should probably go see this this specialist who's going to be able to give you a lot more information about it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So retirement and investments, you know, are tried and true and and tax coming more to the forefront, which is a good thing. I mean, probably wouldn't agree with it, but it's, yeah, I think too many advisors take the easy way out of, uh, oh, we don't do any tax advice. (laughs) It's like, I just asked what my tax bracket was. (laughs) Spoken like a true EA, Adam, our man, Adam, EA. Yes, and rightly so, we should have more tax. Oh man! But no, just uh, I've seen wake so up, many advisors. Guys, wake up! So many advisors. Their clients are like, "Oh, what, what's what's the capital gains tax rate?" Oh, we don't we don't do any tax advice here. We don't do any. You need, you need to talk to your your accountant or your, your CPA. So I had to stop Adam in a. I think it, we were recording a jam session, maybe, and I thought I heard him say, "The IRS publications are straight." forward clear cut and it it sunk in for a few seconds i'm like hey hey wait a minute (laughs) did i just hear you right (laughs) i love our man adam ea compared to the code though i mean although mike you you you've said in the past that you like reading the code right i like going directly to the source i do and i get lost in there it's one of those things adam i'll click in and and i'll keep clicking and i look up and two hours later you know i'm like 10 10 topics away but but still reading and saving the you know the publications Then Mike realizes he's looking at publications from 1973 and none of it's relevant. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, that's when I turn it off, Jerry. <laughs> you, you really need to stop looking at the uh, the IRS publications by going to the library and you know, going to the basement in the microfilm, you know, yeah. with the with the projector. But I love it down there. It's just me, you, you know, and I can be a tax nerd all I want down there. Mike, the te- the tax library troll in in your local basement. That's right. And I kind of become the creeper and then you come up and just recite little tax factoids. Yeah, it scares all the children. You really got to stop that. And the adults, come on. And the adults too. Well, I think that is actually a perfect segue to our next topic we wanted to talk about today. And that is specifically 
married filing singly tax filing status. The the black sheep of the tax filing statuses wanted to give it some uh some special attention on this episode because it is such an unusual situation that has some really unusual pitfalls that you want to be aware of in case you run into it either on the exam or with uh clients in real life. Uh Adam, you kind of want to kick this one off? Yeah, sure. Prepare yourself. This is this is like going into the basement and, and doing some microfiche research with Mike Long. <laughs> so prepare. Yeah, if you keep talking going. about this stuff, you'll be single filing singly for the rest of your life. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is how I create calm space in my household. They're like, "Oh, Dad's talking about my married filing separately. We better leave." Yeah. <laughs> it's, it, this is my calm place. All right, so um, MFS married filing separately. It is the black sheep. I, I, I like that, Jerry. And uh, there, it's it's just just a strange thing. I think before we even dive into the details, it's an interesting place to write questions to, because it, it's so different and it has all of these odd twists. And I can see this from someone writing questions. All right, there's a whole bunch to pick from here because often the exception to the rules is going to be you know, married filing separately. You, you, it, it prevents you from taking some credits. It reduces uh, opportunity to have deductions. It eliminates tax exclusions. Um, it has impact on eligibility for standard deduction. And th- there's a whole lot more. So th- the first thing you'd ask is, well, what is it? It's, it's a married couple. And just as it says, they're filing two separate tax returns. And then I would think the next question is, why would you do that? That's my and, question. Yeah. Um, <laughs> let's let's start let's start here. If if you are a married couple and you have a separation that's kind of pending, you're not quite there yet. You're not legally separated. You don't have the documents in place. Divorce hasn't been finalized. Um, it's certainly a route that you can go. Um, if if you, I mean, maybe maybe just as bad or even worse. Uh, if you suspect your your spouse of tax evasion and you don't want to be a part of that, you don't want to be tied to that because when you fi- file MFJ, married filing jointly, you are jointly liable um, for taxes. Uh, there, there are ways to get around it. You can file uh, innocent spouse relief and right. you, can, you can get around that, but um, you're doing it together. So if, if you suspect there's tax evasion, tax fraud going on, uh, that's another path. Uh, another one is if one of the spouses just refuses to file. Again, you're, you're, what are your options there? Um, married filing. I do not separately. recognize the sovereignty of the United States. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're called what? Travelers? <laughs> yeah. uh, um, I am a sovereign nation unto myself. <laughs> yeah, right. But I mean, I wonder how often people that don't line up on that philosophically actually marry one another. Right. It just yeah. seems like, you know, one of these nuanced things. I mean, there's what, like 400 million people in this country? I think there's at least a a couple. Statistically improbable does not mean impossible. Right. (laughs) Well, and sometimes the discovery is after the fact. Yeah. You you know that, oh, uh, you didn't file taxes for 10 years (laughs) before before we got married? Hmm. That's interesting. Uh, Because would not the married filing jointly refund be subject to that? even even I mean, how would that work with the tax lien on or, you know, um, what do I want to say here? Just taking the refund 
um, at the IRS level? I mean, how, how would that play? I'm not sure. I would I would call the the CPA. <laughs> yeah. Historically, are you talking about like pre-marriage? If someone would, yeah, have been, yeah, and someone has just you know a boatload of back taxes, and then they get married and they're filing uh, jointly, and they have a refund. Um, I mean. It, I think it's conceivable, isn't it? That that I refund would imagine could be so, uh, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, so you know, maybe that's what MFS married filing screwed. Is, is <laughs> way, uh... We'll get into that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> one one other thing, I I at least my limited understanding of it was also for um, couples where one couple was incarcerated, so they're still married. Mm-hmm. But like one couple is, you know, serving jail time. So they would do, you know, married filing separately in that situation as well. It, it could make sense. Yeah. And I think it, it also leads into another, um, I think, more practical, if you even want to call it that. But if you have a, a married couple where there's just a huge income disparity in terms of earning between one spouse and another. I know there are situations where people opt to, to go married filing separately and it makes sense with the numbers. Yeah, especially with... Uh, student loan payments so if Correct. you know one one couple has you know huge student loans and maybe they're on like an income based uh plan they'll do filing separately because you know maybe their income is much lower than their spouses and they get better uh you know payment rates on their their student loan plans yeah absolutely that's um i've seen that and and if you have an income based plan or a pay paye plan um you can you can use the mfs and and have your income-based repayment based on your individual earnings. Um, situation where you might see that is if you have two really high earners, one of whom's carrying uh, a whole lot of student loan debt, um, that might make sense. And, and I think the, the numbers will, will tell, you the, tell you the real deal there. And a lot of software, uh, we were discussing this before we, we went live here, a lot of the software that's out there will run this stuff behind the scenes. Um, and if and if it seems viable numbers wise, it, it'll it'll nudge you and say, "Hey, take a look over here. This this might be this might be a good way to go this year." So so how big of a gap would there have to be on on earnings? I mean, I know some some spouses that are that are clients where one makes a significant amount of money and the other doesn't work at all, and and they're still MFJ. I feel it really matters, you know, how much you also have these situations where it makes more sense, like in the student loan debt scenario like maybe you have two couples you know one one makes a million dollars a year and the other's you know a stay-at-home partner uh but if that stay-at-home partner doesn't actually have any student loan debt then they would still file married filing jointly because there's no point not to you know just just having an income disparity alone isn't enough you also you have to have an income disparity and then also a reason for it to make sense to uh you know file separately yeah that's right and the um the credit piece so <clears throat> like we say tax tax credits are 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 king they offset tax liability dollar for dollar uh, they're really powerful by filing married filing separate there's a whole bunch of tax credits that are just off the table you have earned income credit uh, the American Opportunity Tax Credit the Lifetime Learning Credit uh, elderly and disabled credit all of these are just off the table no goes. And then you also have reductions on some of the more common and important tax credits, if you have children especially. Uh, child tax credit gets reduced in half, and uh, child independent care credit 
is get, receives a partial reduction as well. So there alone, I mean, that's that's some serious downside, especially if you have kids. And on top of that, if, if you have kids in college uh, or, or you're pursuing uh, some degree in, in the evening or or even full time, uh, so that's that's a whole a whole lot of disincentive to uh, to to go this path. So, like you've said, Jerry, you know, it just has to make sense with the, with the scenario. The reducing the child credit in half makes sense to me, though, because in theory, it's reduced in half for both couple, both you know, partners. So they each get to take half. It's not necessarily that it's reduced in half. It's more like you're just cutting it down the middle and giving half to each partner. Yes, and also consider the way that that's going to interact with the individual's retur- like return because now you have separate returns too. Um mm-hmm. so you're 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 not getting that full pop and I think I, I I think that coupled with all the rest of this stuff just makes it less appealing. And on top of it, so there's this weird thing, right? This it's married filing separately, MFS. Um they they keep the taxpayers connected though through this this odd thing where if one elects to itemize, the other one has to itemize as well. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. <laughs> that it's is really interesting. bizarre. But how can they do that? So if you're if you're saying that we want to keep our lives separate financially, just yeah. because they're 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 married, I don't understand why why they, they have the authority to to say that you have to do it this way. Neither do I. I, I bet you that is, I bet you that has caused some really nasty divorce situations. <laughs> Someone like itemizes just to spite their uh, their partner because they know they hate they hate doing complicated taxes, so they itemize to force their partner to itemize. <laughs> yeah, that 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 seems like some some. I just it, that that's interesting that they have that ability to do that. Yeah. Well, it's the IRS. It doesn't have to make sense, right? Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. That's a fair point. I think that's written on the marble floor in their yeah. in, in their Washington <laughs> headquarters. You know, something else that's that uh, is interesting for this, and, and a sure caveat is, I I believe, guys, that for possible taxation of Social Security benefits, if they're married filing singly, I don't think it's bracketed. Um, I, I just think you could go straight to 85% inclusion That's right. uh, of, of Social Security benefits, which is, you know, that could be huge. And I think the nuance uh, there, there's a tiny little wrinkle there. If, if you're married filing separately, living in the same house. Living in the same house. Yeah, yeah. Not, not separately. If you're actually living separately, then I think you're, you're in line with the rest of the, or no, you're, you're in line with the single filers. But if they discover that you're living under the same roof, then they, uh, <laughs> it yeah, goes, it goes, do not it goes pass go, 85. do not collect, yeah. you're going to 85 with this. And then I think it also impacts capital losses too, right? Of how much can be claimed um, on, on a return. Well, I'm not sure of that. I think, I'm not positive, but I think it impacts that too. Lesser important um, than some of the others, but... Uh, but yeah, the eighty-five percent Social Security thing is alarming. Yeah, and on top of all this stuff, um, no student loan interest deduction that's available. Uh, that that has phase-outs to begin with, but that's off the table uh, as an above-the-line deduction, and also um, ex- the exclusion of uh, bond interest that would be available in certain situations. That's off the table as well if you do MFS. Those are all huge, especially like we said. One of the main reasons why people might choose this uh, filing status is, you know, if they have, you know, a large amount of student loans. 
So it really has to, you know, you really have to crunch the numbers, really make sure it makes sense. Because even if you're doing this because of student loans, the gain you get from it might not be enough to offset the fact that you're losing all of these education-related tax credits along with it. Yeah, and one, one, uh, you know, the the IRS and and the tax laws sometimes the, they're they're put in place to encourage things. Like, right, you see this with tax deferral in in your retirement accounts, right? You get the the opportunity to defer tax in, until retirement. Um, and they, they encourage you to do so by, you know, an above the line deduction if you qualify in your traditional IRA. But if, if you look to the MFS little caveat, there is a phase out range and the phase out ranges run for the deductions on your traditional IRA, zero to 10,000 is the phase out range. And for contributions to a Roth, it's the same. It's zero to $10,000. So it's the IRS's way of saying, you know, no soup for you. Like you're, you're just not going to get any of the benefit here that other taxpayers would, would be eligible to, to claim. Do you have any sense, Adam, how many, how many returns were actually filed under this? Is, is no, it, is I'd it a lot or is it? Yeah. It seems like it would just would be, it's so, it's so specific and so nuanced that it, it just wouldn't require that many people actually take advantage of it. That sounds like a good microfiche to, uh, project <laughs> for me. I, I remember hearing the, the data on, uh, estate taxes there's only like like 12,000 estate tax returns filed over the last couple of years and i was shocked by how few that was um and so i'm assuming this is going to be a subset of that even yeah let's find let's do some research mike to uh, the basement um, yeah <laughs> <laughs> i gotta gla- grab my special glasses just think of uh milton uh was it milton in office space it was with the with the swing line the red swing line yeah. My sta- my stapler. Yep. Just picture, just picture. That's me, <laughs> and I only wear those glasses when I'm when I'm on the microfiche, so I can like get right up, and I love it. I'm on it, guys. I'm 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 on this. All right, so I have a number for 2016. This was reported in 2016, of the 150 million tax returns filed in 2016, uh, three million were. Uh, married filing separately. So, so how many tax returns? Out of 150 million tax returns, 3 million were married filing separately. Huh. I'm surprised it's actually that many. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's what, like 2% Two, of the still population? A lot. I mean, it's, that's that's uh, a yeah. lot in terms of numbers. Interesting. And I wonder how many people did that accidentally because there yeah. are loads of people who just check boxes on their tax returns because they think it is what they're supposed to do. And it's just absolutely not. <laughs> I'm surprised there was 150 million tax returns filed. <laughs> <laughs> surprised the denominator's big too. Oh, man. 2.9 million of the 3 million filed innocent spouse relief as well. There's probably a high <laughs> correlation between these. Yeah, that's, that's also true. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, anything else we want to add on this topic before we move on to the question of the episode? Don't ignore it for CFP exam purposes. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things that could be highly testable. I mean, m- multiple questions, perhaps. I don't know. But uh, beware, you know. 
This it's one of those topics that uh, EAs like Adam really get uh, giggly over. So, <laughs> you know, they they like to write questions about it and stick it in the CFP exam because they're like they're geeking out. It's like, oh, this is super cool. I'm going to write a question about it and submit it to the CFP board. <laughs> Next thing you know, CFP board has like 80 questions on married filing separately. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and the EAs taking the exam get get giddy. <laughs> and and get you know get thrown out of the exam room for unruly behavior control yourself they raise their hand to give the proctors high fives yeah yeah <laughs> go it's go come it's my 12th married filing separately i'm crushing this thing <laughs> Let us get into our question of the episode. Early shout out to our listener, Melissa Kessler, for sending this request in. Melissa Kessler is the Biff BFF of the episode. Thanks for sending in the suggestion of a great topic, Melissa. Uh, Shoot us your address so we can mail you out the Biff BFF swag. Uh, I think we got some hats and some other stuff we're going to mail out to you. So uh, send us an email with your address so we can get that out. Melissa wants to know estate planning strategies for unmarried couples. So we were just talking about married filing separately. Now let's talk about, you know, those people out there who don't want to take the plunge. You know, they don't want to they don't want to get married or, you know, maybe in their state they legally can't get married uh, or they never took the process. You know, whatever reason, you know, they are life partners living together. They want to take care of each other, but they are not married and so are missing a lot of key protections. So I found a, uh, a good question that kind of touches on this topic. So let's get right into it. So longtime life companions, Artie Swanson and Marty Clark have lived together for the past 20 years in a home that was left to Marty by his parents. They operate an event planning business, and although the business is informally organized, it produces revenues of $250,000 last year. While there has never been a formal adoption procedure, Marty and Artie have also raised Artie's niece, Lily, since her parents died. Marty has a sister, Ruth, and Marty is seriously ill. Presuming that Marty dies before Artie, Lily, and Ruth, which of the statements below best reflect the transfer of his property? So before I get into even the options, let's just kind of digest that because there's a whole lot going on in that question. Um, so we have unmarried individuals uh, that are living together. You know, they're 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 life partners. However, they are not married. Uh, they have a basically an uh, an adopted daughter, even though they never went through the formal adoption process. And. Uh, Marty, one of the partners is seriously ill to the point where they're actually wondering, you know, they're thinking about, uh, you know, estate planning process. You know, there's a good chance that Marty could die. Uh, basically just so many red flags in this situation. What do you guys think? Well, I would definitely start to pay attention to whether or not, you know, so we're, we're saying, or the question's not stating that there's any kind of documentation as to, uh, what, what Marty's wishes are. 
So at, at that point, I think you need to start paying attention to whether or not there's any kind of blood relation. I think don't assume anything. Now's the time to be seeking the information exactly uh, about how things are going to pass, including in, in their state, um, because states will deal with this a, a little differently um, state to state. So you, if you've never asked the questions of your state, you need to know uh, how this works. It would be really important to review property titling uh, with this, uh, is there any joint property or is it all individual? Because, you know, I'm just thinking of probate may not go the way that this couple would would like for it to go. Yeah, that's a great point, Mike, especially when you're looking at the options uh, for the question, for the answers. Uh, that's the key point. You can't assume anything. Assuming really gets you into trouble with these answers. Uh, Adam, anything you wanted to add before we dive into the, the answer options? No, not at all. I mean, I think that that's a really good place to start from. I'd say both here and and when you start seeing these these transfers of assets at death, is is just high level. What's what is specifically cited as being in place, and then take a look at the demographics. You know, who's the who is involved? Who's involved here, and and how that could play out. And um, in, in certain cases, you know, probate isn't isn't the worst. I mean, if it's if your state is set up so that the assets are going to transfer in a way that is suitable, um, that's fine. It takes care of the asset piece, but it is expensive. It's time consuming. It's public facing. Right. Uh, public so, is the, yeah. yeah, we want to make sure that that's in place. Um, there's there's a whole another layer here. Also, just uh, if if you're talking about a life partnership about some of the benefit eligibility that's that's yep. out there and and, and uh, there's there's a whole bunch more in addition to that but just like on the CFP exam we kind of take what we have here and I think all everyone here is, has brought up great points let's dive into the answers uh, so we got a because the party planning business operates virtually as a general partnership, Artie will automatically own Marty's interest. <laughs> what do we think about that? I'm going to go with a no. I'm going to go with a big old no on that. <laughs> Artie is going to be in for a rude surprise. Nothing's ever that easy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or that logical. And what did the case narrative say? It said it's just informally. Yep. Informally organized. So, of course, I'm sitting here thinking from the previous discussion, how do they file? I guess it's two singles. <laughs> yeah, uh, they have, yeah, they have to. I mean, th this is this is a, a really this is a huge deal, especially in states where, you know, uh, gay marriage isn't legal. You know, this, these are the struggles that, you know, people have to face. You know, it's it's a big deal. It's a lot of paperwork. It's a lot of headaches. Uh, so yeah, if you if you run a run a business with your partner and it's informally organized like this, you might want to take a uh, another look at it. Yeah, absolutely. Just across the board, just about every area, <clears throat> and hopefully this can start years ahead of time. Yep. Because um, it's Not tough, given that he's very ill right now. Yeah. That further complicates it. Definitely. Uh, so A is out. What, what about B? Because Artie has lived in Marty's home for decades, common law marriage is deemed and Artie will be deemed the owner of Marty's home. I, mean, I think check your state law. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Exactly. It's going to depend state for state. And because the CFP exam is a national exam, 
basically state laws don't apply. So we can't assume any of that because that's not a because common law marriage is is different from state to state. It basically just doesn't apply for the CFP exam. So answer on the basis of no, that yeah. that would be a big no as well. That yeah, choice. Unless unless the question like specifically says, you know, the couple qualify for common law marriage, right? like unless it's explicitly stated in the question that they do qualify, you cannot assume, you know, that they would they would get common law marriage uh, entitlement. That's a good tip, Jerry. Now, let's take a look at C. Presuming presuming Marty has no will, it is unlikely that either Artie or Lily will inherit the property. What do we think about that? That sounds right on the money. Right. Yeah. No will. Artie and Lily won't inherit the property uh, because there's nothing to say that they should get the property. As far as the court is concerned, they're just people who are squatting in, you know, Mar- in uh, Mar- Marty's house. <clears throat> and that brings us to D. Presuming Marty has no will, it is unlikely Ruth, Marty's sister, will inherit this property. That's the complete opposite. That's probably what's going to happen. You know, Marty has a blood relative. The court, in all likelihood, is going to uh, award all of Marty's property to Ruth. And Artie better really hope he is on good terms with Ruth. Because if Ruth doesn't like uh, Artie or Lily, you know, she can really screw them over. And the courts award her, you know, all the assets. It's just a good example of, of exactly why you want to have this type of documentation in place. You know, it, it should be at the end of the day in, in scenarios like this, it's whenever, you know, in this case, it's Marty, but whoever the, the person that's dying, their wishes should be carried out. Right. And, and so who knows what Marty would have wanted to have done unless it's put on paper somewhere. So you definitely want to make sure you have wills in place at a minimum. Yep. Yeah. Bare basics. Get a will. Have a will. Have it notarized, you know, have a lawyer look over, make sure it's all, you know, up to date, because there's also been plenty of situations where uh, wills have been uh, overturned because they weren't properly documented. Either they weren't signed or they weren't notarized or, you know, what have you, Um, you know, take treat it seriously, get it professionally done, uh, especially when you're dealing with something as important as this. Yeah. And and I mean, just like the the. The adoption thing should be formalized here. I mean, that that could be a recommendation for, for that kind of question on, on the exam. Um, and I'm also thinking, could not Artie end up in business with Ruth? Right. Ruth, uh, Ruth inherits 50% of the business, and now Ruth is an owner of the business and wants to take an active role in the business. You know, maybe Artie doesn't have any interest in that. Well, in, in all those beneficiary designations uh, as well, don't mm-hmm. assume those are up to date. And I mean, it's just a long list of, uh, of checkoff items that are going to require time and commitment. So besides just having a will, guardianship, proper documentation in place, are there any other kind of estate planning strategies you guys can think of off the top of your head for non-married couples? Things like, you know, trusts. You know, things like Q-tips and, and such don't really apply. They don't they don't work in this scenario. But, you know, what about like AB trusts, anything like that that you can think of? I'd even go a, a, just durable power of attorney. Oh, uh, health good, good proxies. Yep. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And making sure that that's set up because it's very unlikely that if, if you're, you know, in in a partnership that, you know, you need to have that specifically stated and and give those powers to the, the proper person. Yeah, that's that's a huge deal, especially with Marty being seriously ill. You know, he goes into Correct. critical care in the hospital and the hospital doesn't let Artie in to see Marty because he's not a blood relative. That's right. You know, if you don't if you don't have that documentation in place, the, the hospital will keep him on the outside. And, you know, never mind the you know estate planning aspect, just the emotional damage of that is, is devastating. And for exam purposes, the important word there that Adam just mentioned is a durable Right. power. And that's an urgent matter here before Marty gets uh, any sicker is to get that durable power. Uh, so a wrong answer would be, um, you know, non-durable. And, and, and do him Mike, good. Mike, just, just, just for clarification purposes, in case people don't know, what's the difference between a durable and a non-durable power of attorney? Well, simply the, the durable power will survive incapacitation. Marty goes into a coma or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, it's not going to survive Marty's death. It will end then, but up to that point, if he's in a coma or something, then Artie would still, you know, be able to act. And if it weren't durable, what would happen? Basically, it would dissolve upon Marty no longer being able to, you know, give consent. Yeah, incapacitation would end the the non-durable power. So definitely some things to think about. You know, if you have any clients that are in a similar situation, make sure they have this stuff figured out. Um, You know, if they're living together but not married, they don't have the marriage license, or maybe they're not able to get married, whatever reason, you know, make sure these types of clients are taken care of because these are the ones that really need the help and you really want to get it taken care of before something goes wrong. Because if you try and scramble with everything else going on, it is going to be the biggest nightmare. And Adam might be able to speak to this, that the trusts could help, you know, post-death protect some of those assets and, uh, you know, ultimately go to, to Artie uh, you know, and or even, even Lily. So there could be some merit, uh, if not even a revocable, uh, that could revocable trust that could come in, uh, you know, beneficially in, in this matter. Would you agree with that, Adam? Yeah, absolutely. There, there you, you can set up the trust documents so that the, the income is, and the assets, the assets are protected and that, uh, upon some event, you know, that they can, they can be directed to the right people. So that's, that's certainly a way to do it. That's one of the ways you get around probate. That whole process is you put it you put it within the container of the trust. So that's that's another good point, Mike. Well, and and uh, again, with some urgency, sooner rather than later, um, depending on the nature of of, of Marty's uh, sickness, um, you, you know what if ultimately it would head to Medicaid, and there's that Medicaid spend down. Uh, for him that you know having money in a, in a trust well in advance uh, could could help in in that regard as well all great points guys uh good work with that hopefully that answered a lot of your questions uh melissa thank you for sending in that topic uh definitely a great topic to do a dive on uh because it is relevant for so many people 
I uh, hope you guys learned a lot. I had a blast this episode. I know you guys did too. Uh, if you, if our listeners want to check out our back episodes, you can do so at biffbites.com where you can check out all of our podcasts and videos. Uh, until next month, though, we'll be signing off. Thanks for joining me, guys. No, though, thank you, guys. Thank you. Thanks uh, for your organization here, uh, Jerry. Appreciate it, guys. Great points. And all of our students, study on, study on. You've got this. Thank you.